Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We've been looking at the life of Abraham, his life of faith. And his life of faith is particularly important, as we've seen before, because he is the father of faith. He is the, uh, the example uh, of someone who lives by faith. And as we've tracked his journey of faith or his life of faith, we've seen that it's had uh, ups and downs just like it is in our own life, in our own life of faith. But one thing we'll particularly see uh, in this passage that we're going to look at this morning that this life of faith, as much as it is given by uh, the grace of God, it is not something that is earned. It is not based on human works. Yet, the person that lives by faith, by the grace of God, still has a responsibility in living in obedience to God. And that obedience is also an evidence of God's grace in that person's life. And that's what we're going to see this morning from this passage. Just to, uh, because it's been a couple of weeks, just a reminder, particularly as we've been focusing on the Abrahamic covenant. Now God makes a covenant with Abraham precisely because uh, Right up to Genesis 11, what we see is that the nations are lost in their sin. That the, the world is under the curse. The curse of sin and death is what dominates in the world. And so enter Genesis 12 and God's promises to Abraham. And then God enters into covenant with Abraham so that his plan of redemption would come about. His plan of restoring this world and restoring a people to himself. It's a plan whereby God will make everything new. Whereby he will make a new creation for himself and it will reflect his glory. And we saw that in Genesis 15, how God particularly makes that covenant where God walked through the cut pieces of the animals on a bloodied path. And where God unilaterally says, I'm going to fulfill the promises of this covenant. And what a great assurance this would have been for Abraham. And yet what we see is, as we turn to Genesis 16, even though God promised uh, even an heir, not an adopted son like Eliezer, that he would have a biological son and they would simply have to depend on the Lord that Abraham and Sarah, they were impatient with God. And instead of relying on God and trusting in God, they took matters into their own hands. And through Hagar, Uh, a son was born named Ishmael. And we saw how things didn't go so well. Uh, Hagar was sent out. And then finally, because of God's kindness and goodness, Hagar comes back into the household 
of Abraham. And then we saw a couple of weeks ago that now 13 years had passed. 13 years of silence. 13 years whereby in one sense it was the discipline of God because, because Abraham did not trust God. Because Abraham did not rely on God. He was trusting in human effort. But in another sense, the 13 years had passed because God wanted to bring Abraham to that point of nothingness where he would be fully convinced that there was no way humanly possible God's promise of the seed would come about by human effort. It would solely be God's doing, God's power, and God's gracious doing at that. And so even as Abraham recognizes, okay, 13 years have passed, he recognizes he's done wrong, and and in some sense he's even wondering, okay, have I really stuffed up this time? Is the covenant totally annulled right now? And yet God graciously comes to Abraham again, And we saw how God repeats to Abraham saying, no, the the covenant is not broken. No, my covenant is still with you, Abraham. I still have a relationship with you. And I have promised to do all these things. And in verses 4 through 8, we saw how God repeats himself of all the various promises and even expands on the various promises given to Abraham. And we saw at the end of a couple of weeks ago where God himself says the, the ultimate heart of the covenant is where I will be your God. You and your descendants, I will be their God and I will be your God. That is the ultimate heart of God's covenant relationship. That you have this great and good and just and wonderful and merciful and loving and kind God who will enter into relationship with you. All the promises are just really byproducts of being in this wonderful relationship with God. And so God said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. If you look at verses 4 through 8, this is all that I will do for you. And I will be your God. And yet, lest we think there is no responsibility on Abram's side, There's always that other side. If God says, I will be your God, the other side is, then you will be my people. So that's where the covenant obligation comes in. As much as it is a unilateral covenant that God makes, where God says, I will do this, and the promises will ultimately be fulfilled by me, Yet, as long as you are in covenant relationship with me, there is a covenant obligation on the human individual. And we saw this again a couple of weeks ago where God alludes to that in Genesis 17 verse 1 where he tells Abram, walk before me and be blameless. 
And that idea of being blameless is not meaning be perfect in a sinless uh, perfection sort of sense, but has the idea of being made whole, of being made complete. It's the idea of wholeheartedness. A wholehearted devotion to God is what it means. And to walk before God has the idea of to walk with a consciousness that you're walking before God in all areas of life 24-7. To live a life fully submitted to God, recognizing that God is the Lord of your life. But here's the thing. As much as when somebody lives like it, it is evidence that this individual is in covenant relationship with God. And I forgot to mention this a couple of weeks ago, so I just want to pick up here. God's commands and even covenant obligations given to those who are in relationship with him, it is always meant for the good of the individual. Every command that God gives, every obligation that God gives is meant for the good of the individual. Where God tells Abraham to be fully devoted to God and to live a life only unto him, this was for Abraham's good. See, because think of the alternative. To walk before his wife, Sarai, as the ultimate? To walk before somebody else as his ultimate? Offer Abram to walk without any accountability and just say, no, I'm going to live by myself, not before anyone. No, none of those options are good. If God is not the ultimate, if it's not walking before God, it will only lead to disaster. It will only lead to ruin. And it is the case with every command that God gives us. It is always for our good and invariably it is for the glory of God. Because when we live in obedience to God, we're showing how glorious he is, how good he is. And now that in verses 4 through 8, God has reiterated and expanded on his promises to Abram, including that change of name from Abram to Abraham, to reassure him and reaffirm him to him that God's covenant is still with him. Now in verses 9 through 14, God will be more specific about the covenant obligation to Abram. Again, this covenant obligation is for the good of of Abram. Look at verse 9, 10, and 11. So this is the aspect of you will be my people. God has just said, I will be your God. This is the aspect of you will be my people. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised 
You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God says, Abram, Abraham, you and your descendants need to keep your covenant obligations. And this keeping of the covenant obligation is particularly shown, is particularly to be shown through the act of circumcision. Now circumcision, it involved the cutting away of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. It involved shedding of blood. It involved pain. And it was a physical sign that pointed to a spiritual reality. It pointed to the covenant relationship between God and his people. It was a way in which Abraham and his descendants were marked out by God as his people. See, the sign, this sign of circumcision, it would be a reminder to the individual person of the promise of God where God said, I will be your God. Through this sign, they would be reminded of that, that I have this God, this covenant-keeping God, and therefore all the promises that come about as part of this relationship will also be fulfilled. This sign would also be a reminder to the individual of the personal obligation of you will be my people, where then the individual is saying, oh, I will rely on you, God, and trust in you, God. I will be obedient to you, God. I will be committed and devoted to you, God. It was a sign of that covenant relationship between God and his people. And so circumcision symbolized that the people were set apart or cut away from the world and set apart for God, that they were consecrated to God as his people. And so in this way, circumcision marked out Abraham and his descendants physically. Now what's important to note here is only the males were to be circumcised. Now the females didn't have to undergo this painful procedure, not because they weren't included in the covenant, but because they were accepted under the covenant head of the home. So whether it be the father or the husband or the brother, that covenant uh, would flow then to the females as well. Now God gives more specifics about circumcision in verses 12 and 13 we read, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh and everlasting covenant. Now circumcision, it was not something that was new just to the people of Abraham. No, the nations around 
uh, Abraham and his people also practiced circumcision. But it was a mark, it, but the other nations used it to mark people off either as priests or to, uh, it served as a mark of entry into uh, manhood, uh, progressing from being a boy and entering into manhood. So that's when circumcision was done. But unlike the other nations, God says to Abraham, Abraham that the norm should be that male babies should be circumcised on the eighth day when they're just newborn babies. Very different from the other nations in that respect. Now when you think of why the eighth day, well from the medical perspective, the eighth day was ideal time to perform this procedure as it would, uh, it would be the best time when this wound would heal quickly uh, and there wouldn't be much pain. So it was the ideal time to do that. In fact, even the formation of vitamin K and so on and so forth. But in this modern day and age, babies, when they're born, they're given a shot of vitamin K, so sometimes it's done even earlier. But more than the medical perspective, the eighth day was significant spiritually. See, because the eighth day, when you think about it, is how many days in a week? Seven days. So the eighth day is then the beginning of a new week. So it signified a new start, a new beginning. And when you think of previously when days were used, was at creation week, if you remember. That was a seven-day period. So this eighth day, in some sense, is alluding to a new creation taking place. In fact, when you think of the nature of circumcision as well, it points to the same thing. The cutting of the flesh involving the reproductive organ, it signifies removal of something, a death of something. And it, and it signified reproduction in a special way. Basically, again, pointing to a, a, a new life or a new birth or, again, a new creation. And so it's, it's hinting at this idea of new birth, new creation. But, and beyond that, it would even serve as a reminder to every every male from Abraham, that God's promise of that ultimate seed of Messiah would come about only by God's doing. It would not come about by human effort or man's doing. And this mark was a sign of that. And this physical sign of circumcision, it wasn't just for the physical descendants of Abraham, it was for the entire household of Abraham. It involved all the male slaves and servants in his household as well, everyone who was part of the household of Abraham. And this household of Abraham would eventually become the nation of Israel. And so physical circumcision then would mark out the physical descendants of Abraham and the physical nation of Israel many years later.
And what God says is circumcision as a sign of the covenant is so important. God says that I will threaten judgment to those who reject this sign. Look at verse 14. God says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So when you think about it, an adult in Abraham's household who said, who rejected circumcision would essentially be saying this. No, I don't want to be in, I don't want this Lord as my God. I don't want to be devoted and committed and obedient to this God. So such a person then essentially would be cut off from God's covenant people. They would be cut off from his covenant promises and ultimately from God himself. That's the idea there. A person who, who is willfully rejecting this sign of circumcision. Now, here's the thing about circumcision. Now, it would certainly mark out physically those who belong to the covenant uh, in, a, in a physical sense and uh, on a national sense. But really, this physical circumcision was pointing to something inward in the heart. See, the physical sign of circumcision was meant to point to the spiritual reality of a heart that was in covenant relationship with God. Let me say that again. The physical sign of circumcision was meant to point to the spiritual reality of a heart that was in relationship with God. A heart that knew God. A heart that was set apart and devoted to God and set apart from the world. But the sad reality is that many in the nation of Israel, including the babies who would grow up with the covenant mark of circumcision, did not know God. Their hearts did not know God. Their hearts were callous. It was not set apart and devoted to God. And sadly, many in the nation of Israel would think that so long as they came from the household of Abraham, and so long as they bore the physical mark of circumcision, that they were in right relationship with God. But God would tell them repeatedly that this was not so. That they had to be circumcised at the heart level. Spiritually speaking, they had to be circumcised. Listen to Deuteronomy 10.16 where God says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Or Deuteronomy 36 where God makes clear that this spiritual circumcision of the heart is a work of God. This is what Deuteronomy 36 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring... And look at what the circumcised heart does. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. 
that heart that is devoted to God, committed to God, obedient to God, that's what a circumcised heart is. And it is a work of God. In fact, if you turn to the New Testament, in Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul will say that a true Jew, a true Israelite, was not just one who was physically circumcised, but he was one who was also had a heart circumcised as well. That's what a true Jew is. Now you're thinking, if you're sitting here and thinking, okay, I'm not a Jew. You know, how does this pertain to me? And I guess if God is really concerned about the circumcision of the heart, how do I know if, what kind of heart I've got? How do I know if any of these Abrahamic blessings will come to me? Well, first of all, I would say based on Galatians 3.29, it says, if you are in Christ, that if you have put your trust in Christ and you follow Christ, then you are the spiritual offspring of Abraham and you are heirs according to the promise. But then secondly, here's the thing. Those who are in Christ, Paul will say this, that this is what has happened to everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is a believer of Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians 2, 11 and 12. It says, in him, that's talking about Jesus. So in Christ, also, talking to the believers, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So it's not talking about external circumcision. It's talking about spiritual circumcision of the heart. With a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The spiritual circumcision for God's people that the physical circumcision pointed to is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus' death on the cross. You see, even as Christ was cut off from his body at death on the cross and then raised to new life, all who are in Christ Jesus, this is also their reality. Now this language of being in Christ, now we looked at this um, I can't remember, maybe two or three years ago, particularly when we went through Colossians, because it, it would keep coming again and again and again. And this idea of in Christ language is the idea of union with Christ. That every person who truly believes in Christ is in Christ, is in union with Christ, is spiritually bound to Christ. Such that when Christ died on the cross, the old fleshly sinful heart is also cut off and put to death for the person that is bound to Christ. And when Christ was raised to life, the person who is bound to Christ is in Christ, is also raised to newness of life with a new heart. This is true of every Christian. 
that because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, this circumcision of the heart has taken place for every believer in Christ. That every believer, every Christian has a heart that is circumcised, has a heart that is devoted to God in Jesus Christ. And essentially, a circumcised heart is a regenerate heart. A heart that is born again. A heart which is created new, new life, new creation. That's what a circumcised heart is. It was a dead heart before, now it's replaced with a new heart. And here's the thing. As believers in Jesus Christ, who are part of the new covenant, God has also given physical signs under this new covenant as well. And, and there are two particularly, and that's the observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're signs of the new covenant. Both these signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, it points, they're physical signs, external signs, but it points to the spiritual reality that we have spiritually circumcised hearts, hearts that are devoted to God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. That's what both of these signs point to, that spiritual reality. These physical signs serve to encourage us as believers to remind us of what the Lord has done through Jesus Christ, of his covenant promises to us that we belong to him and, and we are his. It is meant to refresh us and strengthen our faith in God and his word. That's the purpose of these covenant signs that God gives. And so similarly for Abraham, what a great reassurance this physical circumcision would have been for him. You know, as if the graphic ceremony, that covenant ceremony whereby God walked through on the bloodied path between the dead animals wasn't enough, as if Abraham's name change wasn't enough to remind him of God's faithfulness, now for this 99-year-old man, God graciously gave the sign of the covenant, which is literally marked on his flesh, to remind him that he is in covenant relationship with God and he would receive the covenantal blessings and promises that are within that relationship with God. What a great reassurance this would have been for Abraham. It was always with him. This mark was literally engraved on him. But God wants to continue to reassure Abraham and strengthen his faith. He wants him to grow in his faith and his dependence on the Lord. So aside from the covenant obligation through the covenant sign, God now tells Abram that he intends also to bless his dear wife, Sarah, as well. And here we come to our second point, the covenant promise to Sarah in verses 15 through 21. 
verses 15 and 16. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah should be, shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So just like God changed Abraham's name from high father or exalted father to a father of multitude of nations, changing his very identity and reminding him that Abraham had a special place in God's plan to bring about God's plan and purposes, God now changes Sarai's name to Sarah, changing her very identity to daily remind her and Abraham and everyone else around that God had a special plan for her as well in his redemptive plan. Now, Sarai and Sarah, they're essentially the same name. Some theologians suggest that Sarai was uh, an older form of the name and Sarah was the newer form of the name. And what these two names mean, Sarai and Sarah, it means the same thing. It means princess. Now, when you think about it, Sarai was the name given to her by her parents. As uh, perhaps they thought of her as their princess, perhaps. Uh, there's perhaps connotations with idol worship because she was an idol worshiper as well. So that, that princess language may be uh, connected to idol worship, perhaps. But here's the thing though, moving forward, in any regard, her parents could not ensure that Sarai would ever be a princess. But God, in renaming her to Sarah, which again means princess, he does this because now from Sarah will come not just nations, but kings would come from her as well. Because kings come from princes. That royal line would come from Sarah now. So if Abraham was the father of a multitude of nations and kings, then Sarah would be the mother of nations and kings. That would come that the royal line would come from Abraham and Sarah. Both Abraham and Sarah had a special purpose in God's plan of salvation to bring about the promised seed. So God is making it very specific here to Abraham. It is not through Hagar that the, that the promised seed and the plan of salvation would come about. It is going to be through his old barren wife, Sarah. Twice it says God is going to bless Sarah, that she is going to have a son, and that son will be part of the promised seed line. Now you can imagine Abraham at this point. I mean, as you think through the whole entire chapter as God has appeared to him, you know, first God appears to him after 13 years and appears to him and tells him, I'm El Shaddai, God Almighty, who can accomplish anything. 
then God reiterates and expands the promises to him. Then God changes Abraham's name to assure him. Then God gives him a physical sign to further reassure him. Now God changes his wife's name again to signify that those promises would come about through her as well, through Abraham and his dear wife. What do you think Abraham would have felt? He's, he's, he's overjoyed. He's full of gratitude and awe towards the Lord. But then again, he's also thinking about himself and his, his wife and how weak they are. And so we read of Abraham's response here in verse 17, where it says, then Abraham fell on his face. So gratitude, awe, all of that happening. But then it says, and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, Abraham laughing here. Now, some have said that this is a mocking kind of laugh, expressing Abraham's total disbelief. Now, I don't think that is the case because, because of God's response to Abraham. God does not rebuke Abraham here. His wife will laugh again in the next chapter and she will be rebuked. But Abraham is not rebuked here. See, it's more the idea that in general Abraham believed. But this was, you know, outside the scope of his understanding of, you know, when he's thinking of how old he is, how old his wife is, who has been barren all this time, how this is even going to happen. It's just outside the scope of human logic. So there's a sense of, Lord, I believe, but, but, but how? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So there's a general sense in which he believes, but there's another sense in which he's wavering in his belief as well. I like how one commentator um, stated, it's helpful, he states, quote, the laughter, speaking of Abraham's laughter, the laughter may have indicated a measure, a measure of disbelief, but this is quite different to the snigger of unbelievers. Abraham is not like the scoffers who ridicule God's word. There is not the slightest hint that Abraham was censored by God for his outburst. His laughter may have expressed mixed emotions. Joy and disbelief can exist together, end quote. And the same commentator uh, points to Luke 24, verse 41. And he says, you know, when Jesus, after he was resurrected and he appeared to the disciples, on the one side they were, they were joyful and they were marveling, but on the other side they were in disbelief. So there was a general belief, and, but there was disbelief. There was a mix of both, of wonder and doubt, of general belief and, and a measure of disbelief. So as he's thinking about what God has said, okay, Lord, I mean, I don't know how this is going to happen. He's joyful. There's an element of doubt, and he's saying all these things. And suddenly he's reminded of the son he already has, Ishmael. 
I mean, this son, Ishmael, that he had cared for and loved as his son for 13 years. He's now thinking about him. And so Abraham says to God, verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. See, up until now, Abraham had believed that Ishmael would be the promised seed. See, because time has gone on, it's humanly impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a son. So he, he up till this point, thought Ishmael would be the promised seed. So now he expresses that, that wish to God. He says, Lord, but can't Ishmael be part of the promised seed line? Can't Ishmael be the covenant son? Look at God's response in verses 19 through 21. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So God says very emphatically, no, Ishmael will not be part of the promised seed line. He will not be your covenant son. But Sarah, your wife, she will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. See, and the name Isaac, it, it literally means he laughs. And, and, and it's interesting when you think about the implication of that name. Because on the one side, this, this name, Isaac, he laughs. I mean, imagine calling your son, he laughs. But that's what his name was. That's what Isaac means, literally means. And so every time Isaac's name was called, it would be a reminder both of the doubt and the laughter both parents would have regarding the announcement of Isaac's birth. But on the other side, the son would also be the one who would bring much laughter and joy and blessing to the family. So in both sense, this name given to Isaac, you know, made full sense. And God says, this son, Isaac, born through your wife, Sarah, will be your covenant son. But at the same time, see, God is still very gracious. He doesn't ignore Abraham's plea for his son Ishmael. He says, I will bless him as well. He will become a great nation and 12 princes will come from him. But the promised seed line through which God's plan of salvation would come about would come only through Isaac. Because Isaac is the son of promise. And then God essentially says, in a year from now, Sarah will bear this son for you. Now one application here is this. That Hagar and her son Ishmael 
represents all that is of human effort in God's plan of salvation. It represents what is contrary to God's plan of salvation where one needs to solely rely on God to bring about his plan of salvation. In fact, that's the argument that Apostle Paul will make in Galatians 4, verses 21 to 31. We don't have time to turn there. But there, there's a comparison between Hagar and Sarah as an illustration. There's a contrast made between those who rely on the law versus those who rely by faith on God to bring about salvation and all that he has promised. And so here's the point in Galatians 4, Uh, 21 to 31, that those who rely on the Lord are analogous to Hagar because both represent human effort to achieve God's promises. But those who by faith rely on God are analogous to Sarah because both represent depending on God for his promises. That's the point in Galatians 4, 21 to 31, where this analogy is made between Hagar and Sarah. And so this should be a reminder to all of us sitting here that no human effort, absolutely no human effort, can bring about salvation. It is humanly impossible. God and God alone can bring about his plan of salvation, including the promises that are included in this plan of salvation. As Christians, may we continue to rely on God as we live this life of faith granted to us and never boast in human effort, but continue to rely on him and live for him. Now lastly, we see now Abraham's response to this. In verses 22 to 27, we'll wrap this up quick. And here's my last point, covenant obedience. Let me just read 22 to 27. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house and bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son, Ishmael, were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those born, bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. I mean, I just want you to think about this for a moment, okay, God, uh, Abraham's listened to God, you know, totally strengthened in his faith and reassured and, uh, you know, the covenant is reaffirmed and uh, all these things are spoken to him. Now, Abram's calling all the men in his household. It's like, hey, all you men, come along. I'm going to circumcise all of you today. Why? Because God said so. But Why? This is the sign of God's covenant. And think of what a massive endeavor this would have been. I mean, we saw a few chapters ago that Abraham had 318 warrior men who went with him to fight those Mesopotamian kings. So those are just the warrior men. So think of perhaps these young men, they would have had their fathers. 
You know, then there's all the other slaves and other servants who take care of his flock and herd and uh, every other part of his household. So we're, we're talking most likely in the thousands, at least a thousand, if not more. This is a huge endeavor. And, and he has to call all these men and say, no, this is what we're going to do today. <laughs> I mean, no doubt there would have been some grumbling. And it would have been a painful endeavor, a bloody endeavor. You know, making a lot of the adult men quite uh, vulnerable. And, and think of the older men, you, you know, including Abram. I mean, there's even questions of, uh, would this wound heal? I mean, the older you get, the more worn out your body is, and it takes way longer to heal. But there's no hesitation on Abraham's part. Absolutely no hesitation. In fact, in verses 22 to 27, it says, you know, there's an emphasis of every male, all men, meaning not one male was spared in his household. Everyone was circumcised. And what it shows is that Abraham's obedience was complete. He fully obeyed God. And then twice again in verses 23 and 26, it says, on that very day, Meaning Abram didn't wait till later, okay, uh, let me just mull over this for a few days and, uh, you know, I'll do it over time perhaps. No, it was immediate obedience on that very day. Abraham's obedience was complete and it was immediate. And that's what true obedience is, isn't it? I mean, we, you know, we've been trying to emphasize with our kids for as long as I can remember, you know, when you obey... You obey fully, obey exactly what I've told you, and you obey immediately, not when you feel like it, not five five hours from now, but you obey immediately because that's what true obedience is. Otherwise, it is simply disobedience. And so that's what you see here, true obedience. Abram's complete and immediate obedience. And this was evidence of Abraham's saving faith. Sure, even though Abraham had some doubts when God initially told him, uh, yeah, through two old people who are as good as dead, God was going to bring life. God was going to bring new birth. And there was some doubts there, even though generally Abraham believed. Now Abraham fully believes. He believes that that which is humanly impossible He believes it wholeheartedly because he believes God can do that which is humanly impossible. And because Abraham believes, he obeys God completely and immediately. Oh, I mean, what an act of faith this was for Abraham. Was I mean, imagine a 99-year-old man saying, I'm going to circumcise myself as a sign that I'm going to be fruitful and I'm going to have a son through Sarah at 99 years old. And I believe, even though it is humanly impossible, I believe that God has said it and I believe it fully and therefore I'm going to obey God and I'm going to circumcise myself. What an act of faith.
Apostle Paul will pick up on this in Romans. And he makes a big deal out of it as he's making another point. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. You know, here, Apostle Paul is making a big deal out of the fact that Abraham was counted righteous. That is basically what we saw in Genesis 15 before he was circumcised. That is in Genesis 17. So Abraham is making a big deal. I want you to understand that Genesis 15 came before Genesis 17. I want you to understand Abraham was declared righteous by faith before he was circumcised. Say why? Because Paul is trying to make the argument that Abraham was justified, that Abraham had saving faith. So when Abraham, what what he's basically saying is that Abraham had a circumcised heart or that he had a regenerated heart before he was physically circumcised. That's the point that uh, Paul is trying to make here. In fact, Romans 4.11, that's why he says, He, that is talking about Abraham, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Meaning that Abraham's obedience in circumcision was evidence that he already had saving faith, that he already had a circumcised heart that what was on the outside matched with what was on the inside, that spiritual reality. In fact, I I would even venture to think that on that day when Abraham was circumcised, this might have been true perhaps only for Abraham. Because many of the men who were circumcised that day, it was just an external thing. It didn't match the internal reality of their hearts. And so what we see here is that Abraham's obedience in circumcision was evidence that he had saving faith and had a circumcised heart. Now this is something that we need to remember well as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, and it's that God saved us and circumcised our heart through Jesus Christ, not so we can live for ourselves, Not so we can live in our sin. No, he circumcised our hearts through Jesus Christ so we can live for him and for his glory and make much of Jesus. That is what a circumcised heart does. Living devoted to him. Living for his glory. Let me just read Romans 6, 10 to 13. It says, for the death he died, speaking of Jesus, to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, believer, also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so implication, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's the implication for then the believer who has a circumcised heart. Let me just for a quick second turn to perhaps if there's anyone here who's not a Christian. See, the Bible says that from the time of Adam, because Adam sinned, we all are born with a sin nature. What the Bible calls as the body of flesh. We're all born with it. No one's exempt from it. We inherited this from Adam. And God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And so no one with this sin nature can ever be in God's presence. No human being can perform any operation or any human effort to get rid of this human nature. It is impossible because it is a work of God. But here's the good news. That God sent his son, Jesus Christ, where Jesus came into this world, lived that perfect life. Then on the cross, he was cut off. He was killed on that cross. And then raised to newness of life for the sin of people like you and me. And so now he has made it possible for anyone who puts their trust in Jesus and follows Jesus, for them to have a change of heart. For this removal of sin nature and to have a heart that is devoted to God. You cannot do it by yourself. It is the work of God. So I would plead with you today, if you're not a Christian, turn to Jesus. Look at the cross and see what Jesus has done for the sin of his people. And if you say you believe, and as a result God has done a work in your heart, then I would say then, turn from your sin. Turn from yourself and continue to follow Jesus because that is the evidence that you have a circumcised, spiritually circumcised heart. That now you have a heart that is fully devoted to God in Christ and you live to make much of Jesus Christ. And for us as believers, for those who recognize that we have these spiritually circumcised hearts, I pray that this message would only spur us on to be thankful to God for what he has done, because this is not something we could have done to change our nature, that now he has saved us and now given us a nature to make much of him and to live for him by his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, and we thank you that through him we have been given a new heart, and we pray that we would live all the days of our life to make much of him. For your glory and for your glory alone, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.